0: Last night, we saw that Hebrew mothers taught their kids that the form of a story is important for the meaning of the story. We're going to see more of that as we go through Jonah. It's, uh, I was telling somebody that uh, I'm from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, hometown of Joe Namath. He's about 10 years older than I am probably. He's probably in his mid-70s or so at this point. But he recently re- released a second autobiography, and it's called "All the Way, My Life in Four Quarters." And he the, the structure of the book is he's telling the story quarter by quarter of when they won the, that first Super Bowl, when the AFC uh, grew up and beat the NFC. And uh, But when he's in the first quarter, it will remind him of something about when he was playing football in Alabama. And that will remind him of something that Coach Bruno taught him when he was in high school in Beaver Falls. And then that will remind him of something that happened with his daughters after he retired. So the book is kind of like going like this. It's it's all over the place. But once you get the hang of it, uh, it's, it's it's a really interesting book, especially because he tells a lot of stories about things that he did growing up where they broke in, the Catholic church they broke into to play basketball on Saturdays. And I said, yeah, I've been there, done that. It was easy to break into that one. On Saturdays, we would break into the Catholic church. On Sundays, we would break into the Jewish synagogue. See, we understood religion. And we knew, we knew when people would be worshiping and when they wouldn't be. And when they weren't, we were there playing basketball. I was the little kid, so they could always like pull the doors that were chained open just enough for the little skinny kid to get in. And then I'd find another door that just had bars on it, open it up, we'd play basketball. A uh, lot, uh, lot of fun things. By the way, Joe Namath was kicked out of that Catholic school. Um, it, just some interesting stuff in there. Um, he got severely reprimanded by one of the nuns, un- uh, unjustly in his estimation, and um, he said some things to the nun that he probably shouldn't have said. But he thought he was just speaking the truth and he wasn't going to let it go. And if any of you grew up Roman Catholic old school, you know what old school nuns were like. Well, the uh, time for him to go into the next grade and the priest comes to the house and said, uh, Joe isn't allowed to come back to school. Um, but he, he said he, it was okay with him because he was... so he. That kind of experience didn't do a lot to build his faith in God. But at any rate, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, I know the school that he was kicked out of. I I used to have one. I wish I I still had it and I could prove it, but I used to have one of his high school chin straps. (laughs) Our high school team had a tradition that after the football game, when they would run off the field at Geneva College and go to Matheny Fieldhouse, um, if they won, the high school players would take their chin straps off and throw them to the little kids who were standing there. And I actually had a Joe Namath chin strap. Um, it, a nephew decided that it was good for something else. And of course, I would ha- I'd have no way of proving to anybody that it was. But if I had it and I could prove it, I could probably retire now. Okay, so at any rate, Hebrew mothers taught their kids that, that form is important for meaning. And so sometimes they taught their kids to tell a story by putting things in like parallel columns, like the creation story. Sometimes leave a, a lone uh, section hanging at the end if that's where you want to drive everybody. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But there's another thing that they taught their kids to do, they taught the kids, and this is getting back to the name of thing, they, they taught their kids to tell stories kind of by going in a ring, getting closer and closer to the bullseye. Uh, okay, we might think of, um, you can look at any of these stained glass windows, they all have the same structure to them. I see structure growing up in, uh, in my dad's cabinet shop, my eye sees things, and I just see the form and the shape of it. But all these windows have a, a, an outside wooden frame. And then on the inside of the wooden frame, there's probably wood, I can't see it from here, but there's an inset dark frame that goes around. Then you have the variegated browns and yellows of the stained glass frame. Then you have another blue frame that runs around, then you have that kind of caramely modeled stained glass. Then you have a red circle, and then you have what's at the heart of the stained glass window. See, it's like a target. It moves from the outside in, but all of that design has it all has its own beauty. Or if you look at the uh, the, the doors. Everything in there is planned out, but on the doors, everything is designed to focus your attention on what? On the cross. And so what Hebrew mothers did here is not like unique to Hebrew mothers. We do have analogs in our own culture, but the point is they told their kids, sometimes tell a story by by having something at the beginning and then match it at the end. That's like the picture frame. And then have another panel, panel two, and have a corresponding panel four, and have those two match. And then right in the center, that's where I want you to put the main point. Just like the stained glass focuses your attention on various Christian symbols, telling stories in this concentric pattern helps you to understand what The main point is, I don't remember, but I probably taught a year ago on Psalm 8, and if I did, Psalm 8 is organized this way, right in the center is the question, what is humanity? Because that's what the psalmist really wants to focus attention on. Well, if you look at your handout in terms of the structure, in the introduction, the structure of 1, 4 to 16, this is the second scene, the one about Jonah and the pagan sailors. You notice that at the beginning, the storm starts and the sailors fear. Well, if you go to the last panel, the storm stops and the sailors again fear, but this time they fear a great fear, And it's the Lord who is the object of their fear. Storm starts, fear. Storm stops, fear. That's like the frame of the picture. That's the correspondence of those outside elements. Then we move in one panel, and the sailors pray, and they throw. They're throwing cargo overboard. In the corresponding panel, near the end, the sailors pray, and they throw. But this time, they're throwing Jonah overboard. Then when we move again, the sailors say, on whose account has this storm come to us? And in the corresponding panel, Jonah says, it's on my account. And then they ask the question, what? And that question, what, is repeated in the next section. And then look what's right in the middle. The Lord, I fear. And the sailors fear a great fear. The Lord I fear, says Jonah. The sailors really are afraid with a great fear. So in one word, just go back and look. There's a word that is repeated in the first panel and the last panel, and it's repeated in the central panel as well. What's that word? Do you have to wonder what this section is about? No, because Hebrew mothers said... Repeat your vocabulary so that people will get the main point. This whole section is about the fear of the Lord. Jonah says, I fear the Lord. But it it raises a question for us, because we would all say we fear the Lord, yes? The question it raises, is our fear of the Lord fact, or is it fiction? That's what this scene wants us to think about because it's going to want us to compare what the sailors say and what Jonah says, but also what the sailors do and what Jonah does, to see who has the fear of the Lord in fact and whose fear of the Lord is just uh, fiction. Uh, Let's just pause for a moment before we jump in and talk a little bit about this concept of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the main theme of the wisdom books. The wisdom books are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Um, The book of Proverbs has an introduction, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 1, and verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of Job starts... Now, there was a man named Job, uh, named Job from the land of Uz, and he was a man who feared God. The book of Ecclesiastes ends, okay, man, we've been all over the place thinking about a lot of difficult and confusing things in life. Here's the bottom line, fear God and keep His commandments. And so that's a. it's not that the fear of the Lord is only used there, but it's a dominant theme in wisdom. Uh, wise living before God and in relationship to other people. But what is that fear of the Lord? You'll see three things in your notes. It's affective. Not effective, although the fear of the Lord is effective. It's affective. That is, it involves our emotions. After all, it is an emotional term, fear. Um, but it's not like being afraid like we normally think of. But there is an emotional component to it. That emotional component, I would say, is awe coupled with trust. When you fear the Lord, you stand in awe of God. You stand in awe of God, and it results in you trusting Him. That's why it's different than my saying, uh, I'm afraid of somebody. If you're walking down a street in the dark at night and you see somebody walking toward you and you're afraid of them, most of the time the reason why you're afraid of them is what? You don't what? You don't know them. Since you don't know them, you can't trust them. See, for us, to be afraid of somebody is coupled with not trusting them. Because even if you did know that person, you could still be afraid, but it's for the same reason. You don't trust that they're going to be in this encounter for your good. But the fear of the Lord is standing in awe of God, coupled with trusting in Him. There's a, uh, there's a verse that you could look at later in Exodus 14.31. In Exodus 14.31, it says, uh, The Israelites saw... The great thing that God had done for them, and they stood in awe of Him and put their trust in Him. Or some translations, like the ESV, would probably say, they feared Him and put their trust in Him. Other translations will say, they stood in awe of Him, like that song, our God is an awesome God. You know, there are hymns where we used to sing about how awful God is, how sweet and Awful, that's been changed to awesome. But the reason why it's been changed is because language changes. Awful used to mean full of awe. How sweet and full of awe is that place with Christ within the veil. But awful doesn't mean that anymore. It means just like really, 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 really bad. By the way, do you know the difference between delicious and luscious? You would if you had uh, word of the day on your phone, because that came to my phone uh, yesterday. And I'm I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to look it up. (laughs) They're related, but they're different. You can say that that peach is both delicious and luscious, but you're not meaning quite the same thing. So it's affective. The fear of the Lord is awe coupled with trust. Uh, But it's also cognitive. It has to do with your thinking. Because the reason why you don't trust somebody is because you don't know them. Or the reason why you don't trust somebody is because you do know them and you know what they're capable capable of. So this fear is always rooted in knowledge. So you can't fear the Lord if you don't know anything about him. So if you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, read your Bible, asking every text, what does this text teach me about God? Remember the Westminster Catechism? What do the scriptures principally teach? Who God is and how we're to live in relationship to God. So the more you study the Bible, the more you understand who God is, the more you understand who he is, the more you will fear him, the more you will stand in awe of him, and you will trust him because you're growing in your knowledge. And of course, it's also volitional. Um, My my third son is in the military. When he was was enlisting, he took a test to see if he was good in language, and it turns out, unbeknownst to us, he was really good in language. And uh, so when when you're gonna learn a language in the military, they send you off to Monterey, and they give you your language based on how high your score is. And the higher your score, they, they, the harder the language they assign you to. And um, so Mark knew that he was either going to be doing, he had a choice. He said, I, I, I volunteered for either Chinese or Arabic. And then I was voluntold that I was going to be doing Chinese. So ultimately, it really wasn't his. But in both of those, volunteer, voluntold. Somebody's will is being exercised. And that's what we mean by volitional. He did it of his own volition. Give me another W word. He did it of his own will. So you see, the fear of the Lord has to also involve your will. It, uh, there are proverbs that says he to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Job was a guy who feared the Lord, and he turned away from evil. They go together. So what is the fear of the Lord that we're talking about? It's knowing God, and since you know God, it's standing in awe of God and trusting Him, trusting Him, as Luther would say, with a living faith, a faith that leads you to strive after keeping the commandments of God. That's what we're talking about with the fear of the Lord. Now, just two things here. We want to look about talk, because there's a lot of talking going on in, our, in verses 4 to six, 14 to 16. and we want to look at uh, actions. So first of all, talk is cheap. You've experienced that in one way or another uh, in life, with your kids. I'm going to do it. Yeah, and then it never gets done for some odd reason. Um, First of all, let's look at an orthodox confession. That's verse 9. And this uh, orthodox confession in verse 9 is right at the center of the story. Um, Helps if I stay in the right chapter. He answered, I am a Hebrew. As we saw last night, what he says in Hebrew is, a Hebrew, I am. He identifies with the Hebrew people uh, right away. Then he goes on to say, um, in the the order of the Hebrew text, he goes on to say, uh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. It's interesting that he refers to God as the God of heaven. This is done a number of places in the Old Testament where the title for God is the God of heaven. It's interesting that most of the time, if not all the time, when God is referred to as God, the God of heaven, it's, it's a way that um, somebody's referring to God in an international context not in an Israelite context. It's when uh, Jonah is talking to a bunch of pagan sailors. Here he doesn't use the Lord's personal name, which is unique to Israelite religion. He uses a referent that, that everybody in the community would understand. This is the same way that Nehemiah refers to God when he's talking to the king of Persia, the God of heaven because it's speaking in a way that the king of Persia would understand. It's speaking in a way that he would reference deity as well. So sometimes um, Old Testament saints refer to God, not in a specific way, but in a general way, a way that would be understood by people who aren't of their same faith. It would be kind of like if you were uh, taking a walk and uh, you walked past um, somebody that you knew from the community who was a Muslim. Uh, they might say, "Hi, how are you doing?" And you might say, "God is really good to me. Uh, you know, I, I'm happy." And, and in that situation, you don't—I don't, don't think—you need to feel guilty that you didn't say. God, and you know, I'm really a Trinitarian, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is God the Son, I don't think you need to always go into all of that. You can speak in a way that honors God by using language that's going to be understood. I'm sure Brandon has wrestled with this kind of thing at times, chaplains have to, where how do you reference deity? Um... Uh, when you're in a multi-religious setting, we have a, we have a past, I had a pastor a while, a while back, and, um, he got invited to pray at the Democratic convention. And he did. And people in the congregation were mad. You know, they said, why didn't you pray at the Republican convention? And he said, the Republicans didn't invite me. The Democrats did. This was a church that was probably 6,000 people, a well-known big church in Orlando. And uh, at any rate, before he prayed, he was instructed that he wasn't allowed to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, that's a different matter. You choosing a general reference to God is one thing. You being told that you can't pray in Jesus' name is a different matter. So on the spot, he had to come up with a solution to this. So he's praying, and near the end, kind of like a newscaster, he says, let me break into my prayer. So he just stopped praying and started to talk to the convention. He said, I realize that we have people here who are of different faith persuasions, and some of you have no faith at all. But there are different ways in which different faith communities conclude their prayers. Now, I'm going to bow my head, and when I conclude my prayer, I am going to conclude my prayer the way my tradition does. And if you want to conclude the prayer in a different way, feel free to conclude the prayer out loud yourself. And he said, let's conclude the prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So he found a way, kind of, To honor the instruction not to pray in Jesus' name and to honor Jesus by praying in Jesus' name. Tough situation to, and to figure that out pretty much on the spot, probably the best thing that he could have done. At any rate, Jonah says, A Hebrew I am. Putting Hebrew up front putting the accent on the word Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew is what we call a VSO language. Verb, subject, object. Walked the man, his dog. That's the way Hebrew does it. That's ordinary. But if you want to focus attention, you put either the subject or the verb uh, the subject or the object in front of the verb. The dog walked the man. Not the elephant. That means the man walked the dog. He didn't walk the tiger. He didn't walk the giraffe. The dog. See, the man walked the dog. The woman didn't. The elephant didn't. It's the man. So Hebrew has a way of focusing your attention by putting something up front. Now, the problem is in translation, all of those are going to come out the same. The man walked the dog, and you're not able to see this focus. You can't see it here. English says, I am a Hebrew, because that's the way we speak English. But Hebrew has done something odd. Hebrew could have said in that same order, I am a Hebrew, but it doesn't. It puts a Hebrew, I am, not a Moabite. Not a, an Edomite, not an Egyptian, not a Babylonian, a Hebrew. And you can hear that ethnic pride in Jonah. And then he says, the God of heaven, the Lord, the God of heaven. Uh, and everybody, every ancient Near Easterner knew what that meant. That's a way of referring to the Most High God. Even among peoples that believed in a bunch of gods, they all believed that there was one God that was most high, higher than all the other gods, and he was typically referred to as the God of heaven. And so Jonah's saying that he worships the most high God, who is the Lord. And uh, he says, in in my translation says, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Um, It says... A Hebrew I am, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land, I worship. It it puts that all the way at the end. Maker of sea and dry land. This is a touch of irony. We talked a little bit about this last night. Jonah says that I fear. My word is worship in my translation. ESV probably has fear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jonah says, I fear the Lord who made the sea and dry land. Jonah knows that in the ancient world, if you make something, you own it. If you own it, you have authority over it. If you own it, you have control of it. He's saying, I I fear the God who controls the sea, and so I'm using the sea as my highway in order to get away from the God who's in control of the very environment in which I have placed myself. That's pretty silly and senseless, Jonah's being true to his name. The main thing to see here in all of this is that Jonah's confession is perfectly orthodox. Everything that he says is true. He's a Hebrew. That's true. Um, He worships the Most High God. That's true. This most high God is the one who is in control, not only of the dry land, but also the sea. This is, like, this is like us using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, etc. This is like a perfectly orthodox confession of faith. He has this... Orthodox confession, that's what his talk is. But he has a complete lack of integrity. And what I mean by integrity is when things are integrated. Uh, We speak of integrated systems. Like if you'd look at my fingers, my fingers are integrated. And some things can happen, and so my fingers can disintegrate. They didn't, like, dissolve or disappear, but they disintegrated. They lost their integration. And what I mean here by a lack of integrity is a lack of integration. There's not an integration between what Jonah says and what Jonah does. He's experienced a personal disintegration. What do I mean by that? Well, as we mentioned last night, verse 5, no praying. No praying like the sailors. Uh, Remember, when the storm came, the sailors prayed, each to his own God. Now, if we're grading them, we're probably going to ding them for praying each to his own God, right? but we're at least going to give them credit where credit is due. They prayed. What did Jonah do? Starts with S. So, I'm not sure who gets the bigger ding. Praying to the wrong God, or not praying at all, even though you say you worship the right God. At any rate, you can see the disintegration between Jonah's faith, what he says, and his life. No working like the sailors. Remember, the sailors not only prayed, they also worked to throw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship so that maybe it wouldn't go down in the storm. Jonah doesn't do that either. He's not a Calvinist. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that it all depends on God and it all depends on him. God is a hundred percent sovereign and he's a hundred percent responsible. He's not praying to God. He's not taking any action at all. Uh, there's a disintegration between Jonah's speech and his actions, a lack of integration a lack of integrity. Your note says third went down. Uh, Remember Hebrew mothers told their kids to repeat things? There are some words that are repeated like golden threads. We've already looked at one. We looked at the word perish. It's going to get repeated more in the book. We'll come back to that. But going down is used four times in the book. We're going to have to wait until uh, our lesson that compares the two prayers when prayers collide in order to see the last use. But um, Jonah lived up in the mountains, and the text says that when God said, get up and go, he got up to flee, and he went down to Joppa. Then the text says, when he got there, he found a ship, and he went down onto the ship. Uh, my translation says boarded. Very good English, but it's it's covering over this repetition of going down. So he goes down to Joppa, which is on the coast. He goes down onto the deck of the ship. And then when it's time to go to sleep, he goes down into the hold of the ship. Every Every time he goes down, he's getting closer to death. The sea is the abyss, it's a picture of chaos, it's a picture of hell. By the time Jonah is below deck, where is he in relationship to the water level? He's underwater already. Every step he takes to go de- to get away from the Lord, he's taking steps that go down, 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 closer and closer to death. Because it's in the presence of the Lord that there's fullness of life, and if he wants to get away from the Lord, it's going to cost him his life. So that's the third time this uh, going down is used when he goes down to fall asleep. And as we also saw last night, Jonah has no concern at all about people perishing, the sailors, the captain does, Jonah, get up and pray to your God. Perhaps he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. Yeah, this is another word that's going to be repeated. Uh, and then the sailors, Lord, if this guy's innocent, don't let us perish. Because we have tried to get him back to dry land and we can't. We have no alternative but to chuck him overboard. They're concerned. That people not perish. Uh, We're going to find out that the king of Nineveh is likewise concerned that people not perish, not Jonah. Well, not to, not, there is one time at the end of the book, I'm not gonna talk about it, but there is one time at the end of the book where finally Jonah is concerned about not perishing but what he's concerned about is a plant. Big irony there. The point is here up to this point, these pagans, they don't want people to die. Jonah couldn't give a rip. He says he fears the God of life, but does not care at all if he or anyone else perishes. So that's Jonah's talk. And in our common parlance, we would just say, talk is cheap. He he talks a good game, but there doesn't seem to be much substance behind it. It's the kind of thing where if Jonah, based on what we know from this story, if Jonah were being put on trial, and the charge against Jonah is, he fears the Lord, the God of heaven. Would there be enough evidence to convict him? And the answer is, not enough evidence. Because there's a big difference between what he says in church on Sunday, which is perfectly orthodox, and what actually goes on in his life during the week. Aren't you glad that you are nothing like Jonah and never have that issue? Where there's nothing but evidence that everybody sees that you are a Christian who fears the Lord, the God of heaven. Well, it's okay to laugh because there's some funny stuff in the Book of Jonah, and there has to be humor in the book. It's like when you're, it's like when you're um, watching a really intense movie or TV show, and they just insert a little bit of humor. We call it what? Comic? Comic relief. You need to lighten up a little bit. And, and the book of Jonah has some funny stuff in it, but more on that uh, later, especially the stuff about the goats. So talk is cheap. Uh, he has an orthodox confession of faith, but there's a, there's a disintegration between what Jonah says and how Jonah actually lives. Well, let's look at the other side of this. Actions speak louder than words. These pagan sailors never say, we fear the Lord, the one who made the sea and the dry land. They don't have that confession of faith. But the narrator will be very careful to point out through repetitions that the sailors really do fear the Lord. They never say it. They do it. Let's look at how that works out. Um, They have an amazing confession in verse 14. And uh, this is in the second part of verse 14 the very end, when it says, my translation says, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Now, I'm going to make kind of a technical point here, but I think it's worth making. And uh, being a Hebrew linguist myself and spending my whole career reading the Bible in Hebrew, Uh, and comparing it to English translations, there are tons of places where I would say, well, I wouldn't have quite done it that way. Well, I would do it this way. Most of the time, those are kind of smaller nuances. This one isn't like going to affect the doctrine of the Trinity, but it does affect how we read the story. I think the ESV and the NASB and the New King James, they probably have something that is the same as the NIV, For you, Lord, the thing is, they they all have some kind of past tense. Have done as you please. Yes? Everybody have something like that? Um, I'm not going to go into the details of the Hebrew grammar as to why I think that is ever so slightly wrong, but I show this to Hebrew students, and my Hebrew students in, like, first-year Hebrew, Know enough Hebrew that they can point out the problem in the text. Um, There's a that 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 um, Hebrew order is again different than English, and if any of you are bilingual, you know that it's often the case when you move from one language to another, languages don't always put things in the same order. Um. If we were to woodenly translate the Hebrew, it would say, For you, Lord, as you please, that's first, and it's present, you do, and it's present. Again, I'm not going to try to explain why that's the case. If anybody's interested, let me know. I'll chat with you about it. But it's it's it, this is not really highly sophisticated Hebrew grammar. Uh, this is pretty basic. But it's something that um, translators just historically have not caught, and I'm not sure why. My guess is this is what the King James says. And all translations after the King James are done by translators who learned the Bible... From King James. And so, just subtly, because King James says it this way, they just don't look carefully enough. Presumption is the king got it right. And so, that past time, you have done as you pleased. Now, what's the difference? Our translation, since it has a past tense, For them, the confession of the sailors is with regard to the sending of the storm. Lord, don't let us die if this man is innocent, because in this one situation, by throwing the storm and prohibiting us from getting him back to dry land, in this one situation, you have done what it pleased you to do. What I'm proposing is that the confession of the sailors is much more amazing than that. What they are saying is, Lord, as you please. Back then, now, in the future, what is characteristic of you as God As you please, you do, always, everywhere, all the time. In other words, what the sailors are confessing is that not in this one situation did God do what he wanted to do, but God always and only does what he wants to do. In other words, these pagan sailors are confessing faith in the absolute sovereignty of God. Because I can say of you, yesterday at lunch, you did exactly what you wanted to do, right? I did. Brandon took me to this nice little restaurant that used to be here, but now it's over in Plattsville, Prattville, Prattville, Richard Prattville. Daniel Prattville, probably Richard's great-great-grandfather, yeah. Richard would probably say so, even if that might not be the case. Yeah, that town's named after my great-great-great-grandfather. great -great -great But at any rate, you know, there's a whole menu there, right? And I can do anything I want. And I wanted the berry salad. It was really good. And uh, so since I wanted the berry salad... I did exactly what I wanted. I ordered the berry salad. And you could say the same thing of all, of something you wanted to do yesterday and you did or this morning already, right? But can you say, everything that I want to do, past, present, and future, I always do? No, because you're a finite human being. Only God can always do and only does what God wants himself to do. That's a pretty amazing confession of faith from these poor, benighted, pagan sailors who don't know very much. If you look at, um, where are we here? If you look at Psalm, turn to Psalm 115, verse 3. The underlying Hebrew is the same, but you'll notice that in your ESV probably, in your NIV for sure, the authors don't translate these Hebrew texts in the past. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does, past, present, and future, whatever pleases him. This is what characterizes God. Absolute sovereignty. What's the ESV say? Anybody have an ESV out there? Yep. There you go. Not he did all that he pleased, right? No. He does what he pleases. Go a few Psalms later to 135, uh, verse 6. Psalm 135, verse 6. NIV says the Lord does whatever pleases Him. Unless you're going to try to limit that, it says in the heavens and on the earth, (laughs) in the seas and all their depths. The Hebrew Bible says, does not have a word for sovereignty. I don't think you're going to find that in any translation. God is sovereign. The fact that there's no word doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't teach it. There's no word for Trinity. But the Bible teaches us that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign in its own language. And this is one of those places where it does so by saying God does, characteristically, whatever pleases him. Uh, Let's look at one more text, and that's Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Daniel 4, (coughs) verse 35. It says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Don't misunderstand that. Don't think that God thinks that all the peoples of the earth have no value. That's not what it's saying. Obviously, they have value to God. He created them in His image. But what this is saying is that if you're going to compare all the peoples of the earth to God, there is no what? There's no comparison. That's what it means. So all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, God, does as he pleases. He does all the time, as he pleases all the time, with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Not just the people on the earth, but the powers of heaven. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? anybody from the context, can you see who's speaking here? A guy named Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king. This verse is the clearest confession of divine sovereignty that I have found anywhere in the Old Testament, and it's on the lips of a pagan. Let's look at three things in in divine sovereignty. In divine sovereignty, God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Do you? No, God does. Where do we get that? No one can say to him, what have you done? He does as he pleases. God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. There might be some things that please somebody to do, and they do them, and they get caught, and they go to jail for the rest of their lives. Because they don't have the right to do whatever they want to do. God does. Not only does God have the right to do whatever he wants to do, he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Do you? No. Notice what it says. No one can hold back his hand. If God wants to do something, nobody can stop him. If a bad guy wants to do something people can stop him. Uh, Recently, you probably heard the story about a bad guy who came into a worship service and wanted to shoot people. But there were good guys who had concealed weapons on them, and the good guys stopped the bad guy. He wanted to do something, but he didn't have the ability to do it because the good guys at least still have the ability to defend themselves. Okay, that's a little political. (laughs) So God has the, He has the, um, the, the right to do whatever He wants to do. He has the power to do whatever He wants to do. And here's the kicker He does whatever He wants to do. Notice it says, He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples on earth. There's divine sovereignty in one verse. God's ability, God, God's desire to do whatever he wants to do, he can, he has the, the, the right to, he has the power to, and he does it. That sets part up, that sets God way apart from us, right? No wonder the text starts by saying, in comparison to that, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. They don't have the right to do whatever they want to do. They don't have the power to do whatever they want to do. They don't do whatever they want to do. They're not the sovereign God. And in comparison to the infinite God, you are wonderful. You are valuable. You are priceless. You are image bearers of the true and living God. In comparison to God, wow, you're, you know, you're pretty little. Yeah? So we need both of those. Because if we only see, like, image of God, our heads can, like, expand. But if we don't see image of God, we just think of ourselves as worthless worms. Neither of those are biblical takes. But God always provides us this wonderful balance where you really can have a healthy view of who you are as image bearers without having an overinflated ego. We probably talked about that if I taught on Psalm 8 last year. So we have this um, amazing confession of faith in the sovereignty of God. Jonah had an amazing confession in the fear of the Lord, but no integrity, there was no integration. So what about these sailors with this amazing confession of the sovereignty of God? Is there anything in their lives that would lead us to conclude, could, can we convict them of believing in the sovereignty of God? of fearing God. They have an amazing integrity or integration between what they say and how they live. Their confession is genuine. What do I mean by that? Uh, as you see, it's, it's, it's God-like. First, first this, the narrator tells us that these folks are God-like, and then he goes the next step and he tells us in his own way, they're not just godlike, they're godly. They become godly people. Um, how does he do that? Well, if you, um, if in, in verse 4, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 1, then the Lord, and I'm going to use a different word to make a point. Then the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. Verse 5, all the sailors hurled the cargo into the sea. The words are the same. The Lord hurled a wind onto the sea. The sailors hurled the cargo onto the sea. Hebrew mothers told their kids to repeat their vocabulary to make points. What's the point that they're making by using the same language with regard to the sailors that they just used of God. The point that is inescapable is that the narrator is telling us, at a minimum, these sailors are like God because God hurls onto the sea and they hurl onto the sea. They're God-like. If you go to verse uh, 12... Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and it will become calm. And then in, now he's a prophet, even though he doesn't say he's a prophet, so he's speaking for God. Verse 15, then they took Jonah and they hurled him overboard. The sailors have a genuine religious connection to God. They are like God. Uh, they're compassionate, verse, verse 13. When jo- It's interesting, you've got to think about this. These guys don't know Jonah from Adam. Through the casting of lots, they figure out that this storm is Jonah's fault. They say to Jonah, and you've got to imagine that you're one of these sailors, they say to Jonah, what should we do to make this storm stop? And Jonah says, I know what you got to do. Throw me overboard. What would you have done in that moment? Chuck that guy overboard. Okay. If he's wrong, he's dead and you're dead. If he's right, he's dead and you're alive. What do you got to lose? Chuck the guy overboard. Did they? No. they. The word is, it's really pretty graphic. It, it says they dug deeply. They, they, they really sank those oars in deeply. To, they did everything they possibly could to get this guy back to dry land because they didn't want him to, what's the P word? To perish. These folks have compassion And they tried to get Jonah back to dry land. And then in verse 16, we see how religious they are. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And what we're interested at this point is they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. Now, there are two things that good, pious Israelites do in situations like this. In their worship of God, they offer sacrifice and they make vows. And in the vow that they make, they basically say, Lord, get us out of this predicament. And when you do, we'll go to the temple and we'll sing Thanksgiving songs to you. We'll give our testimony. We'll tell everybody how we were in trouble and how you got us out of trouble. In other words, like their confession of faith is language that comes right out of the book of Psalms, our God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. They say, God, you do as you please. Just like in Israelite worship, they offer sacrifice and make vows. The sailors offer sacrifice and they make vows. They're, they're doing all of the right religious stuff as well. Do you see the, the integration between faith and life in these sailors? They're godlike, becoming godly. They're compassionate, and they're religious. So they have a genuine integration between faith and life. But one other thing, it's also a growing integration. Now, go back to, your, um, to the introductory note on the, the bullseye pattern of this text. Notice when the storm starts what the sailors do. Well, they're just afraid. If you were on a cruise ship and uh, all of a sudden you find that the ship is in the middle of a hurricane, my guess is you'd be afraid. The sailors were. By the way, this must have been a pretty good storm, right? Have these sailors been in storms before? Sure, they were they always afraid? That's that's the narrator's way of telling you this is a really big storm, because these uh, ancient mariners were afraid. Now if we go to the center, it says that the sailors weren't just afraid, but they feared a big fear. Big is a word that's repeated throughout. Nineveh is big. The Lord sends a big wind. There's a big storm. The sailors have a big fear. Everything is big in the book of Jonah. More on that at the end. uh, Sunday morning sermon. So at first, they're just afraid. Then they fear a big fear. That's a wooden translation of the Hebrew. Then go to the end. When the storm stops... The sailors fear a big fear, but it's not just an amorphous fear, it's the fear of the Lord. So what starts just like being afraid of the storm and grows to becoming terrified of the storm results in them fearing the Lord greatly. Hebrew doesn't use this language. The Old Testament doesn't use this language. We do. We would say these guys got saved. I mean, they, they had their, they went down to the altar and they prayed the prayer of repentance. They were converted. They became God fearing people. Irony, isn't it? The man of God, Jonah, says all the right things, but there's no evidence to convict him. These pagans know very, very little about God. They don't have a Bible. They uh, they understand things about God by seeing him in creation. Jonah told them a few things about God, but everything that they learned about God, they believed. They confessed it. They put it into practice. Who's the good person here, so to speak? The good guy or the bad guys? Yeah, irony, huh? the bad guys are the good guys. And the good guy is the bad guy. Things are not always the way they appear in life, are they? Is it? They're not always that way. Uh, yeah, sometimes the, the people who look the best on the outside don't end up being the best. How many times do you find uh, that the... Preacher who rails against homosexuality is in a homosexual relationship. Things aren't always the way they appear, uh, and aren't you glad that that's only true of them? Okay, let's take a break here.
1: Any thoughts or questions that you'd like to uh, to ask, Mark? Come on now. Yeah, the question, just in case you didn't hear it, is how do we know that the sailors were pagans? Yeah.
0: Oh, you can't be sure on that one, um, but you can have a general understanding because remember when the storm starts and they pray, the text says they prayed each to his own God. Or you could translate it, they prayed each to his own God's. Because the word for God in, um, in Hebrew is actually a plural, but we translate it a singu- as a singular when it's referring to uh, the true and the living God. There's a reason for that in Hebrew grammar. But at any rate, they either prayed each to his own God or each to his own gods, but it's the each to his own that shows us that they weren't praying in that first prayer to the God of Israel. Very good. Other questions? Oh, one other way that we can know that, and this is indirect, um, the, the Israelites were land lovers. They had no sailing ability. And there's a natural geographic region for that. The coast of Israel is smooth, and there are no natural harbors there. And so anytime the Israelites wanted to get involved in sailing, like in Solomon's day, or David when he was bringing lumber from way up north. They always had to have contracts with other people like the Phoenicians who lived north of them because the Phoenicians were great sailors, and just north of Israel you have natural harbors. So the Israelites weren't sailors, uh, and so there wouldn't have been an Israelite ship sailing from uh, Joppa to Tarshish. They just didn't sail. You can also see that in a psalm like Psalm 104, which is a beautiful hymn of creation that celebrates in detail the beauty of God's creation, and it has like one line with regard to the sea, because they didn't have any experience. They didn't have much experience of the sea. So there are a couple of ways that we know that the sailors weren't um, Israelites,
1: I had a question about the the language a little bit. You mentioned the three times where the sailors feared. And in the second, the third, at least in the English standard, it translates. It says they feared a great fear, as you said. And the last one says they feared exceedingly. Is that simply an an English variation? English variation. So the words are identical in those two places.
0: So that was the ESV that did that? See, that's odd because one of the strengths of the ESV over the NIV is that if there are these kind of repetitions in the Hebrew text, the ESV makes it a point to try to replicate those repetitions. But even the ESV people feel that there's times when they can't do it and still have good English. So woodenly, it says, the Lord threw the big storm and the sailors feared. Then when Jonah makes his confession, it says, the sailors feared a great fear. Then after they throw them overboard and the, sea stop, the storm stops, it says, they feared, a great fear, the Lord. Of course, now that reads weird, doesn't it? But that's the kind of weirdness of the Hebrew text. So once they say they feared exceedingly, they don't completely make this growth from fear to great fear to great fear of the Lord invisible. They don't completely mask over it, Uh, but they do cover it up a little bit Uh, in the same way that the NIV does. I think the NIV says the sailors were afraid, and then with regard to the confession, it says this terrified them. So you can still see conceptually the growth, but you don't see it. It's not quite as in your face as when you use awkward English, feared fear to great fear, fear to great fear, the Lord.
1: Yeah, I just didn't know if it was a continual progression where it's completely big, bigger and biggest, yep. or just big, biggest no. and biggest.
0: And there is a way that uh, the Hebrew could have used like a superlative, uh, or they could have even used an, ad, an adverb, ma'od. They feared ma'od a lot, but they don't. They use that exact same thing three times. And that's intentional because Remember, Hebrew mother said, repeat your vocabulary. And so these, the repetition of fear ties it all together. But the change from fear to big fear and from fear to big fear to big fear of the Lord shows us that progression. It's a good translation.
1: Other questions? Oh, Meryl. So the question is, how could how could Jonah sleep in such a big storm that terrifies sailors? Yeah.
0: Um, what's that stuff that people take before they fly? Valium. Yeah. Or whiskey. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, the text doesn't address it. The only thing I do know is that uh, my dad was in the Seabees. And uh, he was a Seabee, and he went... Uh, to Okinawa. He didn't see combat, but he went to Okinawa after the battle, and he was involved in building the airstrip on Okinawa. And my dad said that it didn't matter what the sea was doing. He slept like a baby when he was on ship, regardless of the movement of the ship. But the bottom line is, I don't know. There are often, but this is a good, good point to make. Often when we read a story, we have questions that the text never says anything about or doesn't make a point out of, so our best response is just to say, good question, I don't know. Doesn't mean it's a bad question. It just means we have to be willing to know our limits and not to try to answer questions that the text doesn't intend to answer for us. It's, it's not interested in that, apparently.
1: This may be a, a broader question, uh, taking more time, but uh, when you outline for us the structure of, of 4 through 16, uh, about how it all drives us to the Lord I fear and the sailors fear to great fear right there in the center, do you have an, an easy method for how just in June general Bible study, how I mean, we can recognize repetition when you have refrains in the poetry and things, but how in our reading can we recognize a structure like
0: that? Yeah, you've already given the right word and that is the key is repetition. And I've stressed that, right? I've repeated that <laughs> for a reason because it really is one of the keys, one of the main keys to analyzing. Now you all know because from from last year we talked about translation, and you know that I'm not the biggest proponent of the ESV. It's not the translation that I use. If a church were asking me to recommend a church uh, a, a pew Bible, I would not recommend the ESV. You probably have the ESV as your pew <laughs> Bible. Uh, I like the uh, NIV 2011. I like the NLT, um, but for this. If you want to be studying your Bible, and you're confined to English, because you don't know Hebrew, and you want to really dig in and look for things like this, your NLT is going to be the worst at this. Don't use it. Your NIV is not going to be as bad, but it's still not the one to use. Your ESV or your New King James or your NASB. They're more wooden, which is why I don't recommend them for general reading. But the reason why they're more wooden is because they are woodenly trying to replicate what's in the original language. So if the text says fear, big fear, big fear of the Lord, you're going to be more likely to see that in the ESV or the NASB than you are in either the NLT. So I use the ESV. Uh, sometimes I even preach out of it. Uh, I've been preaching at one congregation, and for example, um, if you asked me to, you know, let's say that you're going on sabbatical and I live close, and you wanted me to preach four Sundays in a row because Brandon had a sabbatical,
1: I'm not, and he doesn't. Yeah. So just put that out. But
0: if that time. were the case, no, yeah, he didn't say anything to me. Um, are there elders here? There better be. Yeah. um, I'm not sure how long Brandon has been here, but elders, if he hasn't had a sabbatical, you really ought to think about giving him one Um, because it'd be good for his soul. And the sabbatical just means it doesn't mean that he's going on vacation. Really, what I mean is some extended time to study and to just pray and to be with the Lord when he doesn't have all the regular responsibilities, It will just really renew his... He didn't ask me to say this, but I I say it whenever I can. Um, It will renew his soul. And will that be good for you? Yeah. So even if you want to do it out of self-interest, do it out of self-interest, because if you can give him some time uh, to just regenerate... Uh, You know, back in the day, Presbyterian ministers would uh, have like the summer off. That's probably a bit much to ask in this day and age. (laughs) But they would have the summer off. And you know what they would do with their summers? They would read their Bibles. They would read secondary literature. They would write sermons for the next nine months to come. I know from my own experience, and you probably know this too, I I tell students that whatever you're going to be doing, you have to understand your own life rhythm because we're not all the same. Uh, And I have a sweet spot where I work the best. If I'm too far away from a deadline, the juices just don't flow. I can't get into the project, other than uh, some general thoughts. If I am right up against the deadline, I don't work well. Uh, It's just like something happens in my brain and, uh, the, the, the synapses just aren't firing right. I know my sweet spot in between too far away and too close. And that's when I really think creatively. That's when I do my best sermon preparation, class preparation, writing. And so I look to always, now, can I always be in that sweet spot? No, because I'm not sovereign God, but I do my best to get there. And, uh, and Brandon has never told me anything, I assure you, about the, the warp and woof and the flow of his pastoral ministry. Um, we've spent some time last year and this year, but we've never really talked about what his ministry is like in, in any way. So this is not coming from anything that he has said. But I know from when I was a pastor and when I'm a professor, that when you have to just turn out sermon after sermon and lesson after lesson, it gets hard. And so if you can give him some breathing room to do a little bit of reading without the pressure of having to turn it into sermons and lessons, it'll do wonders for him. And uh, it'll do wonders for you as well. And as I say, We haven't talked about any of this. He didn't ask me to say any of it. I hope it's okay with him that I said it. But I'm on Medicare, so I can kind of like, I can say anything I want, right? You know, you do find that when you get older, you're not quite as inhibited about saying things as when you were younger. What can they do? Fire me? See, he wouldn't say that, because your answer might be, yeah. But for me, okay, retirement's just like a year or two away, anyhow, so. Speak my mind.